Welcome, you are listening to Stoic Conversations, a discussion between myself, Caleb Ontiveros, and Michael Tremblay about the theory and practice of Stoicism. We discuss what we've learned about building resilience and developing virtue through our philosophical studies. We're not sages, so we'll also touch on how we are or have approached obstacles in our own lives with the hope that hearing these stories will be useful to others. Welcome. My name's Caleb Ontiveros. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Michael Trombley. And today we're going to be talking about frequently asked questions and stoicism. The very first question is, who should I read first? All right. What's your take on that, Mike? Yeah, woohoo. Let's jump into it. Exciting with these questions because it's the things that people want to know, things that we hear a lot about. So the first one is, what stoic should I read first? I'm going to have a bit of a controversial take maybe, but I'm going to provide some context. When you first get into Stoicism, there's a lot of kind of introductions. So Ryan Hollis, Simo Pigliucci, like there's these kind of actions, Donald Robertson to Stoicism. And then people naturally say, okay, I've kind of, I've read about it. I want to actually read it. But some of the works, you have these older translations, you have the, the, this confusing, these confusing writings. You want to engage with it. But you don't know where to start. The big three Stoics, the big three Roman Stoics are uh, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca and Epictetus. And they're the most famous because they're the ones that we have the most writing of. We actually have a lot of what they have said has been preserved, which is lucky. The earlier Stoics, the founders of Stoic Stoicism, lived 300 years before these guys. But we've lost what, they've, what they said. We lost what they wrote, except for some fragments, except for some pieces that have been preserved. So when you're thinking about where to start, it's usually going to come down to one of these three people. And I know a lot of people, I know the most famous is Surrealist's Meditations. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I know a lot of people like that. I know that was one of the ones that was recommended to me. But where I recommend people start actually is with Epictetus. And I recommend that they start with Epictetus's handbook. And my reason for that is there's a couple reasons I have for that. First, the handbook is really short. It's about maybe, I'm looking at this now, in this every man's copy that I have, it's actually about 20 pages, right? So it's not deep or not long. doesn't require a big time commitment. The other thing that's valuable about Epictetus is that Epictetus was a teacher. So there's a lot of, I know a lot of people love Marcus Aurelius, and I think there's a lot of value to his writing, right? I think it's great. But Marcus Aurelius is, is an advanced practitioner. He's an advanced Stoic writing to himself, right? The Meditations is a series of self-reflections, a series of notes he provided himself only for the purpose of himself. It wasn't intended for wider readership. And so when you dig into Epictetus' handbook, which is a 20-page summary of his key lessons, you're getting the greatest hits. You're getting the greatest hits presented by somebody who's writing for students, who's writing for people who maybe don't find Stoicism intuitive, who maybe need some clarification, who maybe disagree. And that's what I really like about it. And that's why I think it's the best place to start. And then if you, if you dig into Epictetus and you like it, you'll know you'll like the rest of it and you can commit more time and dig more into it. But then you'll also have a strong foundation. You won't likely to have, you're not as likely to have misinterpretations as you can sometimes have reading other Stoics. The other big one is Seneca's Letters on Ethics. I love this one, but as you can see, I'm holding up a copy for those listening. My edition is 600 pages. So it's a huge commitment, right? It's a lot to sit down and read a 600 page book when you're looking to start, you're looking to dig into it. And so that's why for me, it's Epictetus's handbook. But interested to hear what you have to say about this, Caleb, what your thoughts are. Yeah, well, there's always a question of uh, who's asking. So if you've read a little bit of maybe some modern Stoic and you're thinking about which of the ancient Stoics should I start with first? 
there may be um, one answer and then for people who have heard very little of stoicism apart from maybe just a clip, YouTube video, or a friend told them about something, perhaps the answer is slightly different. At least for me, I found the meditations to be the most powerful and interesting. So I read, I did read Epictetus actually while taking an undercourse, uh, undergrad course, but reading him, it didn't strike me as an important philosophy, just given the mm-hmm. place uh, where I was at in life, which isn't so much a knock, knock on Epictetus by any means. I came to Stoicism through reading Nassim Taleb's Anti-Fragile. He mentions Seneca a decent amount, and then from there going to Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. And it was the meditations that stuck out to me and who I'd happily refer people to one of the modern translations of that work. Yeah, that's something worth clarifying too, is that translations make a difference. I think when you're starting your journey, you're asking, who should I read first? I think you should prioritize readability over accuracy. I think what's important is that you expose yourself to as much of the thinking as possible. And then you're going to be in a better spot once you've read a lot of Stoicism. You're going to be in a better spot anyway to discuss questions of accuracy or interpretation or things like this. But I think sometimes people, I know I read this on online, and people jump right into these kind of hundreds of translations that they can get for free. And they're like, this is terrible. Why did these people write this way? And they thought they didn't write this way. They were writing in Latin or ancient Greek, but this was a style of translation back in the day, 100 plus years ago. I'm a bit interested in what in what piqued your interest in Marx Aurelius. Because yeah, I think as you said, it, it really comes down to the individual. Because for me, I was, Epictetus was the first person I read. And I just fell in love with his way of writing. It was like a total shock to the system. And I know people get that experience with Marcus Aurelius. And I value Marcus Aurelius as a thinker and as a historically significant practitioner of Stoicism. But it, it never had kind of that same kind of emotional, intuitive appeal that Epictetus did for me. So I'm interested in in what Marcus Aurelius, why he appealed to you so immediately. Marcus Aurelius just has a number of aphorisms that stuck out to me. He has a sort of laconic, almost cryptic at times, writing style. And the topics range from ways that people have influenced him to what are probably paraphrases of Epictetus to some reminder about how to manage people to even much larger sort of philosophical summaries on how he views his place in nature. So that large range where so much of the language is designed to carry the message specifically, you or one gets a sense that Marcus Aurelius either chose these phrases that he heard from elsewhere or wrote them himself so that they would be maxims he could remember and use them mm-hmm. in practical life. So whether it's a reminder like at some point you will have forgotten everything later everything will have forgotten you or something of that nature that sort of these sorts of phrases are something one can return to in one's ordinary life yeah so maybe if epictetus was writing for students and that's the appeal on my end marcus aurelius was writing in like as punchy a way as possible i'm conscious that we have no there's no love for seneca here i think seneca is great i really do value and i don't think you can go wrong picking up any of these I just think that there is a certain punchiness, as you said, in Marcus Aurelius, there's a certain punchiness, there's a certain maximization of the ability to remember these things, the ability to act on these things. And then Epictetus' style is just meant to jolt people out of their comfort zone. And so I think those are much right. more, 
think both of those can be a bit more inspiring or a bit more motivating first read when you're getting into it. I would say that if you're looking for something more systematic, then Epictetus makes the most sense because neither Seneca and certainly not Marcus Aurelius are that systematic by, in, by the way of presentation. So in a sense, if you're looking to understand Stoic philosophy, going to Epictetus first would be ideal. If yeah, you're looking for letters on specific situations, like how to manage time, then you might go to Seneca if you want notes on how a specific person incorporated these ideas into his life, then meditations is the place to go. Yeah, that's a good way of dividing it. Great. One interesting question, or one question I have for you is whether there is a, if you remember a specific pa passage that jumped out to you. One of the first things I remember about reading about Epictetus that kind of jumped out to me, there's obviously the dichotomy of control, which is really interesting, but I remember the, of the, person who had to hold the chamber pot, the, I think this is the thing that people go to the bathroom in and this kind of like person who was in a low down position and had to clean these or move these around or work a very kind of embarrassing job basically. And I remember there's this passage Epictetus is talking to this person, basically says in this conversation is either do it or don't do it, but don't do it and complain about it. Like either, either you're above the, the, that kind of work, in which case you say no and you suffer the consequences or you're not above that kind of work, in which case you do it and you reap the benefits of being paid or, and you face the consequences of doing something that's maybe embarrassing or maybe lower um, social standing. And that the thing that jumped out about that, it's a funny story, but the thing that jumped out about that to me was that call for kind of consistency. That call for that idea of don't do something and then complain about doing it or, or be upset that you're the kind of person that does it or be frustrated about your situation that made you make this choice that you then made. It was this idea of, you know, again, something now years later is very intuitive to me, but this idea of like you've been dealt your cards, pick the card that is most suitable to you, that seems the most appropriate to you, but don't spend this time whining about the hand whining about the card that you've been dealt. And in a way, that's an actualization of the dichotomy of control. But that was just so striking for me. Because again, it's not just abstract philosophy. It's about practical action. And it's about the way that you relate to the practical action. So the effect that has on your happiness and your perspective. And, and Epictetus just has this way of talking where he just makes it sound so obvious or makes it sound like the idea that you were ruminating on this problem is the silly part. And what matters is the action or how you confront it. That's what stood out to me. Yeah, that's a... Great example. He just has so many stories like this, whether it's that one or noting Helvidius Priscus, who he believes his role is to be a senator and whether he's threatened with being exiled or execution does not matter. It's he's chosen to be a senator and he will face the consequences of doing that, performing that role excellently. Yeah. Uh, there's also, there's the athlete who I can't remember for what reason, but is has to is faced with the choice of getting their basically their genitals amputated, and the athletes, no, I'm an athlete. I care about my body. I'd rather choose I choose death than be like physically mutilated in this way. Which is always a bit these cultural examples. There's another one about the beard. You'll do, kill me before you kind of shave off my beard because I'm a philosopher. There's this kind of cultural specificity to these stories, but they're always this point about. You know, be consistent, walk the walk, figure out who you want to be and be it, right? I think that's Marcus Aurelius, waste no more time thinking about what a man should be and like what, or what, you know, what kind of man you should be and 
be one or be that person. That was just, that was very confronting and very different than the other kind of philosophy I'd read in school, which was very about, we're going to spend a lot of time worrying about <laughs> what type of people we should be. We're going to spend a lot of time worrying about ethics and very little time worrying about actually acting well or personal transformation. For me, I always love the line from Marcus Aurelius, very short, just that the universe is transformation, life is opinion. Uh, that's a very sublime way to capture Stoic philosophy. Build resistance and practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Here's what our users are saying. I'm new to Stoicism and wanted to dive deeper with guidance. This is it. I love the meditations. I've practiced meditations with other apps, but this just seems to be more impactful. Life changer. With Stoa, you can really get a sense of how to take yourself out of your thoughts and get a sense of how to handle different, difficult situations. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. Our next question is then, what is really in our control? Yeah, this is a juicy one. I really like this one. I wrote a paper about this or a piece about this for Modern Stoicism blog. And this is one we get all the time. And I think one of the most common misunderstandings. And so the dichotomy of control and Stoicism, it's one of the first things you learn. And it's presented with this view of some things are in your control, some things aren't in your control. You should care about the things that are in your control. You shouldn't care about the things that aren't. And it really naturally leads to a lot of these, like people naturally go, okay, that's all good and fine, but what's in my control and what's not in my control? And people, and then you end up with all these kind of like more deep concerns about it because people will say, your beliefs are in your control and people will respond, no, it doesn't seem to me like I can change what I believe. It doesn't seem to me like I can change what I think. Or how you act is up to you and people will respond. So it seems to me there, there's parts of my behavior that are either genetic dispositions or th ways that I grew up or ways that I now just like respond to situations. Like people naturally want to push and pull on this concept of control. It's one of the most common questions I see online is people saying, what about this? Is this in my control? What about this? Is this in my control? So to answer that question, first, you really need to understand the terms that we're talking about here when the dichotomy of control is presented, because the dichotomy of control is, I would say about 80% right the way it's presented. And it's presented that way because it's easily understood. Anybody can snap to it and understand it immediately. But the real concept that the Stoics use I think is better translated as up to. And when you go back to the Greek, it, they talk about up to you, not, they don't use a word for control. Mm -hmm. They use a word that is, you know, means like determined by you or up to you. And so the key concept for Stoicism is not one of control because control is this ability to, I think we define control as this ability to either immediately determine, in which case it's no, your beliefs are not in your control because you can't immediately determine your beliefs or immediately think differently or act differently or immediately not be angry. Your emotions by that criteria aren't in your control. Or we think of control as the ability to like strongly influence. You know, we say LeBron James controls the basketball game. And what we mean is that like, he really sets the pace, but that's not strong enough either, right? Because we wouldn't want to say, the Stoics wouldn't say that the outcome of a soccer game or basketball game are in your control. So th this idea instead is I really think people should drop this idea of control and switch to this idea of up to you. And it's a little bit more complicated, 
It's a little bit harder to explain to non-Stoic, but it's much more robust. And what's meant by up to you is this idea that do you determine it? Are you causally responsible for it? And what is meant by that is can anyone else but yourself stop it from happening? So if I, if I make a decision, if I decide to walk across the street, that decision is up to me. Nobody can stop that decision. That decision is caused by me. It's determined by me. Nobody else can stop me from making that decision. But my ability to actually walk across the street, <laughs> that can be impaired by a cliff, by a wall, by some, by three people holding their arms together and not letting me by. So my ability to actually walk across the street is not up to me, but my decision is up to me. And so when we think of up to me, it, it makes a lot more sense than trying to think of these things in terms of control. And then so the question is not really what's really in our control. The question is really what is up to us. And as Epictetus says, what's up to us is really the faculties of our mind, the way that we think, the decisions we make, our emotions, choices we make the way that we respond to situations. These are the things that we determine. These are the things when something happens, we say, who was responsible for that? Who was responsible for your anger? Who was responsible for your choice? The Stoics are going to say, that, that's you. That's up to you. And so on, on one side, the upside of thinking about things as up to you is it, it removes this confusion around control. The other upside to this is it allows this sense of kind of moral transformation and personal improvement that takes place over time, right? Because the thing that you hear is if you don't, when you begin to study stoicism, you hear anger is in your control. And somebody very intuitive is like, anger doesn't feel like the kind of thing that's in my control at all. It seems like the stoics don't really know what they're talking about. But they're not talking, they don't say anger is in your control. They say anger is up to you. Anger is the kind of thing that you're responsible for, that you create. Not the external situations, that your thought processes, your decisions. We just did a, a podcast, you and I, Caleb, on stoicism and emotions. And we talked a lot about how Anger is determined by our judgment, by the way we think about, about things. These extreme emotions are caused by the way we relate to situations. And that's why the emotions are up to us, because they're, they're, they're being produced by the way that we think about the situation. Likewise, the, the way that we believe, the way that we believe things, the way that we act when confronted with the situation, these are all things that are up to us. They're things that we have to shape over time as we strive towards self-improvement, our character, or the quality of our character, our virtue or vice, that's something that's up to us. But it's not something we control in the sense of, like, I can't immediately snap my fingers and become a good person. But it is something up to me. It is something that I'm passed becoming a good person over the course of my life. So that was a bit of a, a, bit of a long answer. But to, just to wrap that all up, the idea is what, what's really in our control doesn't really matter to the Stoics. What matters is what's up to us. And what's up to us are these things that are the result of our choices uh, the, the choices themselves and the results of those choices. So things like our, the decisions we make, our emotions, the quality of our character, the way we treat other people, the way we think about ourselves, these kinds of things. These are the things that are up to us. And that's how you should apply and think about the dichotomy of control in a more robust way. So how does this manifest when it comes to beliefs? It seems like, it, someone might say that it seems like beliefs are just uh, something I have when the world appears to be a certain way. I can't, in what sense is my belief that I have been harmed or the sun is bright up to me as opposed to external influences? Yeah, I'm going to really nerd out on this one because I think it's a really good question. Epictetus uses this term, which is the prohiresis, which is our faculty of choice, right? And for him, really, that's the thing that's up to us. 
And what's included in faculty of choice, in the, our faculty of choice, our prohiresis, is the ability to reflect on a situation, the ability to make a decision about that situation, and the result of that decision. Be that an emotion, be that a desire to, to, to do an action. That's really, on Epictetus's account, what's up to us, just those three primary faculties. I was giving more particular examples before, but it's those three primary types of things. So again, to reflect on a situ to reflect on something, to make a decision about it, and then the results of that decision, the result to form a judgment and the results of that judgment. So when you say belief is the result of the judgment, so to provide an example, someone insults you. I think these examples are always really easy and they're really emotionally charged. Someone insults you. We don't have a belief yet, right? We just have a situation. And we can play that out because if it's a stranger on the street, it's your best friend that you've known for years. It's, it's a person that you've hurt and maybe has the right to insult you. Depending on the situation, you're going to look at that situation very differently. So all you have is an event, somebody that's said words to you. That's the impression. That's, a, that's the first part of this link that leads to emotions and judgments and, th and thoughts. That impression is not up to us. Somebody can honk their horn and they can put an impression in our brain. We don't control the impressions that come in. What we control or what's up to us is what we do with them. So, the, so then we then reflect on that impression. We say, wow, I'm really angry that person said that, or we're just joking around, or maybe I deserved it, so I'm not angry. We reflect on it. We form a judgment. And then that judgment leads to an emotion or behavior or a decision. So beliefs, beliefs are the, are the, are come after reflection. Beliefs come after judgments, right? Impressions are not beliefs. Impressions are these sensations. Beliefs are things that we've believed, we've assented to, they're actions. They're things we've had a choice in. So on that view, of course our beliefs are up to us because our beliefs are things that we have participated in, they're choices, they're actions. Um, impressions, the kind of the way that the world is initially presented to us, that's not up to us. People can do that. People can force that on us. But these beliefs are things that, that we participate in. So what do you say about the case where it just seems essentially difficult to make a particular judgment? I think the insult case is very useful and practical. And the stoic view seems clearly true there. But maybe there are other cases where you look at the sun and you have natural beliefs about the, sun, the, the sky, the sun's brightness, or perhaps in other emotionally charged cases, something especially tragic happens and you just naturally respond to that situation and feel like, yeah. where's, where's the, where did you play a role in this? Yeah, so I think, that, I think that's where the distinction between up to you and in your control becomes important. Because I, I think what you're saying, Caleb, or as I'm understanding you is, it seems really clear to me that there's some things that I don't feel like I'm very much participating in. Something tragic happens and I just get upset. I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel like I'm deliberating like a scientist removed from that situation. Or I look at the sign and I think, wow, there is a sun there. I am not really like the, it becomes input, like the way that I would explain it using this stoic model of the mind is it becomes input output. The impression comes in, mm -hmm. it moves right through the machine. The belief comes out. There's two things you would say to this is first you would say, yeah, you're right. That doesn't really seem like it's in your control. And you're right that in a kind of a meaningful sense, it's not in your control. But what it is, it's up to you because you're the one that kind of controls that, that machine, that judging machine, that reflecting machine. You're the one that's built it over time. 
So if you're saying, I'm the kind of person where if I see a house, I just think that's a house. If I see a sun, I just think that's a sun. What that's telling you is that you've built a judging machine that's not very skeptical. That's not very reflective. And what you want to do is then over time, you want to practice refraining judgment. You want to practice your skeptical skills and kind of change, change that machine. So instead of something coming in and a belief coming out, the impression comes in and it stays there. It doesn't output the belief. And that's up to you to cultivate and develop that change, right? That's a result of, that's a, and if you're not doing it, it's still the result of you. That's still up to you. It's just not what you want. With the examples of grief, we think we don't feel grief in a vacuum, right? We have tons of beliefs about what matters to our lives, who these people are, what the situation is. And if, yeah, if you being who you are, confront that situation, you're going to have the same output every time or a similar output because you have a certain beliefs coming into that situation and you have a certain kind of skill set at reflecting and judging. You have a certain kind of level of progress as a stoic. And once again, yeah, you don't have full control over that situation. You don't have these full kind of mental skills yet, but those skills are, nothing is being caused by the impression. Nothing is, nothing is impossible for you to change over time, I would say. And it's in, it's in that sense that the responsibility, the up to you-ness, the causality is placed on you, not on the event itself. Yeah, absolutely. The way I think of the dichotomy of control is in terms of what initial kind two kinds of things are under your control and what initial for and a first pass at that are there just two kinds of things. Decisions and your reflective judgments. One can decide to do nearly anything, whether that decision reaches its aim is quite often not entirely under your control. We have the common analogy of you are the archer and you can guide the arrow to your best ability, but if something unusual happens, a target moves, there's a sudden unpredictable gust of wind, that sort of thing is out of your hands. And then reflective judgments, I think the model of what the sort of input output is, you are what is in between that and that you can shape that machine as it were, or you can shape yourself to have a sort of character to believe particular things or not believe particular things in any given situation. And that's a lifelong project and something that takes time. It's less like decisions in the sense that it feels like one can make nearly any decision in the moment and more a matter of slowly shaping yourself into a kind of person who has true beliefs. Yeah, I think that's really well put. I really like that. Yeah, and grounding that as you do in your identity, what you fundamentally are is the next step. Why is this sort of thing, why are these two things up to me? It's because this is what I am as a rational and social being. Yeah, we could spend a whole episode on the dichotomy of control. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the, there becomes the, there's the two parts of that. There's the up to, and then there's the you. Uh, so you're bringing in both a conception of what it means for something to be up to something. And then you're also bringing in a conception of what you are. And yeah, if you don't identify yourself with your mind exclusively, if, you, if your identity is entirely linked, to your beliefs, your behaviors, your choices, then we might lose some of that. But that's a really important part of that for the Stoics. When you evaluate someone, when you judge somebody, you're judging them on the quality of their beliefs, their decisions, and their choices. You're judging them on the quality of their character because mm -hmm. that's what they are. 
They are, as you said, a rational being, um, a decision-making thing. And the decision-making thing is good when it makes good decisions and bad when it makes bad decisions. I think this really naturally leads into our next question. So our next question is a very common one. What is virtue? Stoics and, of course, many other ancient philosophers, philosophies center around this idea of virtue. And it's not a word that is used perhaps as much as it used to be in the English speaking world. And it's a word that might have somewhat different connotations than the Stoics imagined it as possessing. So it's always important to be clear about this, especially since it's the ultimate aim, if you will, of the Stoics life is to cultivate virtue. And the closest analog to virtue in the English language is probably character. So virtue is traits that someone may have. Some you could think of it almost as firmly ingrained habits. You can describe someone as being conscientious, thoughtful. These are parts of their character. And virtue specifically is excellent character, not just any kind of character trait. It's the character traits that humans are supposed to have and what make us excellent. So in the most abstract sense, or perhaps not the most abstract sense, but a rather abstract sense, virtue is character, specifically good character. Yeah. And I, if I can provide some context about virtue too, to flesh that out more, because I think that's, I think that's dead on. When you say virtue is good character, it, that's what is virtue for the Stoics, which is an important distinction. Um, because the virtue, the Greek word is arete, and the Aristotle and Plato and all these Greeks that came before the Stoics that were talking about this, they would talk about the arete of anything, like a inanimate objects, right? It was like, it was, it meant the excellence of, so you could have the arete of a car, right? You could say the virtues of a car is to go really fast. My car is excellent because it goes very fast and I can control it quite easily. And it looks nice on the outside. And people could disagree about what the virtues of a car were. They could say, no, I think what's important for a car is that it has great gas mileage. And you can have a disagreement. And, and, but you're talking about what it means to be a great car. And people would all say a car that doesn't run is a bad car. You, you could all agree on a lack of virtue too, or uh, things that would be vices, right? And so it's the sense of excellence. And then that excellence with the car example, right, is defined by what the thing is. So what is it means to be an excellent car? is very different than what it means to be an excellent knife, which is very different than what it means to be an excellent person. And as you pointed out, for the Stoics, what it means to be an excellent person, what it means to have virtue in, a, in the context of a human being is to have good character. It's not to be athletic. It's not to be physically attractive. It's not to be even socially adept or anything like this. It is to be to do the right things, to act the right ways, actualizing their four cardinal virtues. And when you think of virtue in this ancient Greek sense, again, to summarize that, it's this overall excellence. And then it's like virtue of what? Virtue of a person. And then people would disagree about what that means. For the Stoics, they go, oh, virtue of a person is something very small. As you already said, Caleb, it's these traits of character. It's these ingrained habits. It's these ways of acting. That's what the Stoics are talking about when they're talking about virtue. So it's not really a very abstract... It's not a very abstract, elitist, removed thing as it might sound when you first hear virtue. It's like, you know, how good of a person are you? How, when we measure you, when we 
size you up as a quality of a human being. What we measure then is we measure your virtues. We measure your character traits. We don't measure something else. Yeah. So that's the kind of, so that's the kind of contextual history that then that stoicism provides a distinct answer to, which I think is still, in my opinion, I think the right way of thinking. Yeah. And, and then there's the question, okay, what character traits are good? And of course, there's the four classical or four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, self-control, and wisdom. Sometimes people might call self-control moderation or temperance, or wisdom has a very distinctly practical element or concerned about practical wisdom. But nonetheless, those are the four concerning how you treat others and justice, what sorts of things you avoid or fear and what you do not avoid and fear, encourage how you relate to your desires and self-control, and then finally how your picture of the good and of the world comes together into a character that one could ideally describe as wise. I think the thing about the four virtues is they're stations of the same thing. Right. So they're like, they're, they're different ways of talking about the same thing. And the thing that they're talking about is knowledge, right? Virtue at the end of the day is knowledge. And then you can say knowledge of what, in some cases it's knowledge, as you said, of what to avoid, not to avoid. And we call that kind of knowledge courage. Sometimes it's knowledge of what to desire or not to desire or, or how to moderate those desires. And we call that, um, self-control. But at the end of the day with the Stoics, all of these things are conceived of as all of these virtues are just different types of understanding of the world and understanding how to navigate the world. And that comes back, if that sounds counterintuitive to people, because a lot of times people think of courage as something that I train up or I develop over time. It's like a muscle. It's not knowing. I know that I should be able to stand up to, I know that I should be able to do what scares me when it's good or stand up to people that are cruel or unusual, but I can't, I have that knowledge. But for the Stoics, again, they had that kind of input-output machine, right? Like that kind of, that, that way of looking at your mind as this reflective, something that reflects and judges these impressions that you have. And they're like, if you really understood what to do in the situation, you would come to the right judgment and you would act in the right way. The person that acts well is just the person that knows what to do and really thoroughly understands that, not knows it in a propositional sense, not I could write in a test, oh, I should act this way, but really understands why they should act that way and their values align with that and they know why they have those values. But that's the kind of crystallization of perfect virtue in the form of the sage, the ideal individual. And then these other ones you were talking about are these, they're just ways of talking about that when you apply it to different situations. And so that's why sometimes you'll talk about like virtuous knowledge. And then, then we have these different virtues. They're all just these types of knowledge, these ways of talking about knowing and understanding. And that, that helpfully answers the question, are these the only four virtues? And the answer to that is virtue is really only one thing, knowledge, but <laughs> it has many different handles or there are many different things one can be knowledgeable or not about. Although these are, I think, a very useful initial classification. There are, of course, other ways of talking about virtue and one can think about virtues that might be neglected from the classical four. Yeah. That being said, isn't the sort of situation where one can pick out any possible traits and label it as a virtue. There are real constraints on what counts as a legitimate virtue. And that main constraint being, is it the sort of thing that is aligned with what is true? Does that character trait 
properly help one pursue knowledge. Yeah, great. And the other thing that, again, there's so many different ways we can tackle this, but another thing that I wanted to hit on with virtue. Yeah. So there's this constraint of trueness, right? It's not like there's this constraint of trueness. You can't just say, you can't just call anything a virtue. There, there is real right and wrong with stoicism, which is nice. It's not this, it's not subjective. There, there is this kind of, there's some ambiguity in, in situations that you need to evaluate individually, but there is a clear conception of right and wrong and the better and worse way to act. If you value something, for example, that doesn't have value or you ignore something that does have value in the pursuit of something else. That's very abstract. If you sell off your family for $10, so it's going to say you've put money on a bit of a pedestal there. You've made a knowledge mistake, right? Or you, again, going back to easy family examples, you're not able to be a good parent or you're not be able to do your job well. You're not able to fulfill a kind of beneficial role in society because your desires take control of yourself, whether that's something like gambling or these kind of this inability to, or a need for possessions, they're going to say, look, like you really have, you're lacking this kind of moderation. You've distorted, you have a distorted view of what matters in life. Another thing that I want to say about virtue, we could almost do another episode. I'm realizing now about stoic contradictions or stoic paradoxes, because another thing about virtue, because we talk all about virtue, but one thing that the stoics think is that virtue is all or nothing right? Virtue is like something like straightness. And the Stoics will say, look, you can't be more or less like straight as in like not a curved line, like a straight line. You can't be more or less straight. That straight is the state of being this perfection. Um, and virtue is the same way. You either have it or you don't. And people will say, what do you mean you have it? And clearly there's some people who are more virtuous and some people who are less. And they, they make this analogy to the individual drowning, right? And they say, look, whether your head is below the surface by an inch or you're at the bottom of the ocean, both people are equally drowning. And that's the, way that, that's the way that they talk about virtue. And the reason for that, that can sound very, it can sound very elitist. It can sound demoralizing. But the reason for that is that virtue is knowledge, right? So you cannot be courageous without also having a knowledge without also possessing the other virtues, without also having the other ones at the same time, right? Somebody who's like robbing a bank and not afraid of getting shot, they're not displaying courage, but lacking temperance or moderation, right? Be they're actually lacking courage because they're doing something without fear, but they're not embodying knowledge, like a kind of holistic knowledge as they do that. And this, that's, that's an interesting thing, but then that doesn't really change us as people that are progressing, us as people that are trying to be better people. But it's this helpful thing that even though you can think of this knowledge as being, or these virtues as being divided, they really do interconnect. And if you try to become more courageous in a vacuum, or you try to become more self-controlled without a conception of why you're trying to be self-controlled or what the purpose of it is, you can't really develop virtue in that way. They have to be interconnected. They have to be de being developed together because they all connect in the same knowledge. What do you think about that, Kelly? I think the idea that virtue is unitary is correct. And often people make the mistake of picking out a trait they, in isolation, find admirable about a given person and perhaps overestimating the character of that person just because they have one specific trait that is admirable when that trait is misused. A common example might be if you admire the political skill of a particular politician. Is that really so valuable? That depends on all the other traits that the politician has on their ends. And admiring something like political skill by itself is a mistake. It's a real sense of 
not latching on to the right thing that matters. Yeah, totally. It's not excellence in terms of how a human being should be excellent. Because when you think of virtue as excellence, it's a political virtue. It is excellence in terms of the job, right? The same way somebody can be excellent as a doctor at a certain skill set. It's a medical virtue. But a human virtues, being an excellent person, you can't take something in isolation. It has to always be interconnected with the rest of being a good person. So we've covered three questions. And at this point, are running into the limits of time as well as technical issues. So we might call it there. We covered what Stoics you should read first, what is really under your control, and the nature of virtue, which seems like a good list for about 45 minutes. All good things to know. Yeah. All good things. Excellent. Chat soon. Great. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And please get in touch with us at stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.